Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me open us with a word of prayer. Father, may you speak to us by your word. And may you do the work that you need to do in our hearts, that we may love our Lord more than all other things, that we may walk in his ways, that we may know him. We offer this time to you in his beautiful and holy name. Amen. Amen. I think one of the um, chief vices of our time and culture is discontentment. Discontentment, especially in this season, ironically enough. In America, we're richer than any generation in the history of humanity. We're healthier than any generation in the history of humanity. We live longer than any generation in the history of humanity. And yet, despite these good things, we're discontent. Discontent with our country, discontent with our government. We're discontent with our churches, our jobs, our relationships, or the lack of relationships. We're discontent with our income, our houses, our possessions. And you may think, Mike, I'm not discontent with all that stuff. Probably not. Hope not. Otherwise, I'd be happy to meet with you. But I'm guessing something I just said you've been discontented with in the last week. And now we're on the eve of that great capitalistic consumer holiday. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Christmas. Christmas. All, all month long, you've been bombarded with advertisements. 60% off if you buy 10 or more. You need this. Your kids need this. Your family needs this. You won't be happy unless you have it. And not just this month, you've been bombarded all year by media and social media who, get this, no joke, have spent tens of billions of dollars this year alone in trying to get you to use their products more, which involves making you discontent, right? Because no one sits on their phone scrolling for hours unless you're discontented with your life. <laughs> uh, Meta, the, Facebook parent, or sorry, the, the parent company of Facebook, has spent over $20 billion this year on research and development, and that's not cancer research, y'all. That's how to keep us on Facebook longer, keeping us discontented. So no wonder we're discontented. And here's the truth, is that there are a few things that will sap your soul like discontentment. Um, it causes its own issues, but the problem with discontentment is it also robs all the joys of the good things that God has put in your life just sucks the oxygen out of the room. You're not able to enjoy anything you have. And the reason for this is because in the end, discontentedness is nothing other than a sickness of the soul. It's a sickness of something within us. And all of us will go through seasons of discontentment because of the ups and downs of life, because we live in a fallen world, and because our hearts are sick and we need the grace of our God. All of us will go through seasons of discontentment. But here in Psalm 31, we have the testimony of a king and how he has received contentment and trust 
And this isn't just any king, it's King David himself. And what he has to tell us is that his contentment has not come through his achievements, through the kingdom he built, through all of his exploits, through all the riches he had, but his contentment is in the Lord. So, hear what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Our outline for us as we walk through Psalm 131, and if you don't have the Bible open, it's helpful to see it as we, as we go through it, so please go ahead and do that. But uh, Psalm 131, first point, preparing for contentment. Second point, finding contentment. Third point, a call to action. So our first point, preparing for contentment. Let me read verse 1 for us again in Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Sometimes before we can fill a house with good things, we have to empty it. And that's what David is doing in verse 1. He's, he's telling us, this is why I've emptied out of my life to prepare room for God to come and bring the contentment that only he can bring. And he gives three kind of negative declarations of what he has cleaned out. And so first he says, my heart is not lifted up. Now in the Bible, the heart doesn't just refer to emotions in the way that we typically use the word. It refers to the whole inner self. So your thoughts, your feelings, your volitions, the inner person. And to say my heart is not lifted up, David is saying he does not think too highly of himself. He doesn't make too much of himself. He's not taking an exalted view of himself, his accomplishments, his abilities. And what's kind of shocking about this, y'all, is that David was a king. We, we, we don't have like a modern an analogy for that in our Western democracy, Someone who had unquestioned, unlimited power. There was no one who could say to the king, you can't do that. Like in Israel, they, they weren't an egalitarian society. David was the most important person in the country. He just was by divine right. And yet here he says, I'm not thinking of myself more than I ought. And David wasn't just a king. He was this incredibly successful king. Probably the greatest king. Arguably the greatest king in all of Israel history. And here's the thing about success is when you have a lot of success, the temptation is to begin to think that you really are something. So for instance, to use a, 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 you know, an example of a hometown, hometown boy, I don't know if this story is true. I've heard it a number of times. It may be somewhat urban legend, but I think it's true. Muhammad Ali is flying on an airplane, and the airplane is getting ready to take off, and the stewardess is making sure everything's ready, and so she walks by Muhammad Ali and says, sir, you need to put on your seatbelt. We've all experienced that. And you and I, as normal human beings, usually say, okay, sorry, I'll put it on. But Muhammad Ali says, no, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And the uh, stewardess replies, yes, sir, but Superman also doesn't need an airplane. Please buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> and that, you know, that's what happens when we have success. We begin to think so much of ourselves. Yet here is David, the most successful king in the history of Israel, saying, I have not lifted my heart up. Here's the question. How can David not think much of himself when, frankly, there's a lot for him to think much of? If you're the fastest man on the planet, how is it not possible if you think you're the fastest man on the planet? I mean, there's a lot for David to think much of himself, and yet he says, my heart is not lifted up. How is this even possible? And the answer to that is that David is comparing himself to God. He's in the presence of God. He's not looking at his friends around him, but he's approaching the presence of God. And in the presence of God, compared to God, what is David? Even as the greatest 
king of Israel. In the presence of God, who am I? Who are you? Martin Luther, he was the man who began the Protestant Reformation, one of the most significant social changes. I mean, literally, you could argue that Martin Luther may be one of the most influential men in Western civilization. The Reformation changed everything in our culture. We still feel the effects of the Reformation. A man who could claim to be very important and a big deal, when he found out that there were Christians calling themselves Lutherans, he got so upset about that, he published an essay, and he said this, said, I ask that men make no reference to my name. Let them call themselves Christians, not Lutherans. I'm glad we're not a Lutheran church. This would be an awkward quote to re- read. Anyways, what is Luther? After all, the teaching is not mine. Neither was I crucified for anyone. How then should I, poor, stinking, maggot fodder that I am, come to have men call the children of Christ by my wretched name? That's why it's fun to read Martin Luther. You don't read a whole lot of theologians who use that kind of language. But he's spot on. No man and no woman can boast before the Lord, even King David, even a Martin Luther. Because in the end, every person is just worm food. And so David is not lifting up his heart. He's not exalting in himself or his accomplishments. And this is the first part of his preparation for contentment. The second part of his preparation is my eyes are not raised too high. It says it there, my eyes are not raised too high. Now, in the Bible, when the Bible uses the word eyes, it oftentimes is referring to our desires. We look at what we desire. And so you've got to think of the image of raising your eyes up. What are you doing? Well, you're looking for the next thing, the next best accomplishment, the next thing you can acquire, the next notch you can put on your belt. But David says he's not doing that. In other words, David isn't straining after the next great accomplishment, the next status symbol, the next treasure he can put in his palace. He's not driven by desiring what he does not have. So those are the first two parts of his preparation. He's not thinking too much of himself. He's not being driven by desiring the next best thing. But third, David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And the question is, what does that mean? What, is it, what are those things that are too great and too marvelous? And he do, it doesn't tell us in the psalm. But the best interpreter of the Bible is always the Bible. And in the psalms and in the prophets, when it uses that language of God's great things he has done or the marvelous things he has done, it's almost always referring to God's acts of creation and his acts of sovereign providence, what he's doing. So in other words, it's referring to what God has done, the great things that God has done, the great things that God is doing now and the great things that God will do. And so what does David mean when he says, I do not occupy myself with these things? In other words, David doesn't pretend to understand all the workings of God. He doesn't pretend to have plumbed into the depths of how God works and what he's doing in this life and what he's up to. But as Moses taught in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. David doesn't pretend to understand God's will for everything beyond what God has clearly revealed in his word. In other words, David is content to be a creature and allow God to be God. So this is David's preparation for contentment. This is the cleaning out the house to prepare room for God to come in and provide the only contentment that is real and lasting in the cosmos. And I have kind of a summary application of these three negative declarations, and it's this. 
Beware of human ambition. It's interesting. Uh, again, David, a highly successful king, undercuts human ambition in each one of these declarations, that kind of desire to, to make much of ourselves, to achieve great things, to, 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 be, to have other people say good things of us. Well, David undercuts that in each, in each of these ones. He's, he's, he's not striving for greater things. He's not exulting in what he's done in the past. In fact, he renounces it all. I'm not lifting my eyes up. I don't lift my heart up. That is true wisdom. As one commentator puts it, it is better to be a humble beggar than a proud prince. That's a crazy statement you think about it hard enough. But why is it true? It's true because God is especially displeased with pride. Psalm 138.6 says that the Lord is great. He cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. And I don't think it's helpful to make lists of which sins are worse, but it's pretty clear in scripture that pride is at the top of that list if there is one. And ambition, at least in practice, always seems to be intricately connected to pride. So just beware of of human pride. Beware of a desire to do great things. Now, you may think, okay, Michael, what about spiritual ambition? What if I want to do great things for God and his kingdom and the glory of God? That's got to be different. And, and, And yeah, I mean, I think we can all admit, like, wanting to do great things for God is certainly different than wanting to, like, build my human empire and, you know, be a mega millionaire by 30. Like, those are different desires. We can recognize that. Nonetheless, I remember a pastor I heard speaking a few years ago in another church shared how he was always encouraged by young men going into ministry who were full of ambition, who wanted to do great things for God, who had big vision. He said he found that refreshing, the kind of zeal and gumption. Um, and of course, that was who he was. He pastored a large church. He had a big vision. He was very ambitious. And he was later removed from ministry for pride and domineering leadership and spiritual, um, and spiritual abuse, really. And the thing is that it's, 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 just, it's a fine line, a very fine line between building the kingdom of God and building your own personal kingdom. And the genuine desire to see Christ glorified and magnified all too often is laced with desires for personal glory. So here's... Oh, and let me give a caveat before I get to my pastoral advice. At the same time, laziness is not humility, right? So you may think, okay, I shouldn't strive for my own glory. Therefore, I'm going to do a second-rate job of my work, and I'm going to play video games all weekend. No, <laughs> that's not what this is saying. I know people are like, man, I was really excited about this, where this application was going. Never forget, brother and sister, if you are a Christian, you are the Lord's. Because he loved you first, and he bought you at the dearest price. And everything you have belongs to him, because he's worthy of it all. And so here's my my pastoral advice. Wherever God has you now, whether you decide to be somewhere great or somewhere not great, work at it as working for the Lord, because you serve the eternal king. And in the end, when we come to the end of time, and we stand before Christ our judge, I think what we will find is that many quote-unquote great works that were done in this world were nothing but human empire building, and they will have no eternal merit. Whereas many of the insignificant things that you do that no one knows about, 
and moments of faithfulness and sacrifice that you do in Christ's name that no one knows about, that will be shown to be real greatness. So my, yeah, my advice, beware of human ambition, but faithfully serve where Christ has you now because you serve a king and he's worthy of our best. So that's the first point, preparing for contentment. David empties himself of pride, ambition, of self, so that he can receive God, who's the only one who brings contentment. This is our second point, finding contentment. Let's go ahead and read uh, verse 2 again. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Again, there, there are two sides to what's happening in the psalm here. First, David shows what he's emptied himself of, his pride, his ambitions, conceit. But then he shows what happens as a result, contentment, peace. I mean, the first thing he says is, I have calmed and I have quieted my soul. It's so significant that David describing his contentment begins with the soul, you know, uh, because at the end of the day, contentment, as I've already mentioned, it's a matter of our souls. Now, as humans, we have body and soul, and we live in a highly complex web of relationships and institutions and societal ties, and so, so much of what affects us and what we experience has many causal factors, and I understand that. If you experience grief, it's probably because something sad happened. Maybe a loved one died. We had a great life disappointment. Depression often has a physiological component to it. If you're burnt out, it may be because you've been doing too much, carrying too heavy of a burden for far too long. But discontentment is different. It is purely a matter of the soul. It's not a matter of our biology. It's not a matter of our circumstances. And I'm, I'm going to prove it to you here. It doesn't come from anything external, but it comes from within. My generation, the millennials, um, people born between 1981, 1995, give or take a couple years, there's debate on this. Again, we are, uh, we, we, on average, this is averages, okay? On average, we make more money than our parents that are our age. On average, uh, we're more likely to have gone to college than our parents did at our age. Uh, we're more likely to own a house than our parents did at our age. We're even more likely to be alive, Child safety devices. Mine was the first generation that grew up with child safety devices, and they work. Less kids drown in pools because of child safety devices. Less people, I guess, fall out of a car because of those child safety locks. Despite all of those, like, like measurable improvements of life, like this is data, you can look at this. Despite all these measurable, measurable improvements in life, I would say the millennials, my generation, are no more content than our parents were. In fact, I'd argue maybe we're probably less content, less happy. And the reason for that is because, again, contentment and discontentment are matters of the soul, not matters of external circumstances or what is happening to us. And so, again, this is so important. What has brought David contentment? You might think, well, I mean, if I could live in a palace and just snap my fingers and someone will make me a great banquet and I can do whatever I want and no one can tell me what to do, yeah, I'd be content too. Of course, that's ignoring all of the incredible difficulties David ex experienced. But what brings contentment for David it wasn't achieving whatever he was yearning for. It wasn't changing the difficulties in his life. It was something that happened to David internally. 
something in his soul. Something happened. Everything outside stayed the same. But inside, he's content. He's at peace. And the way that David describes it is is just beautiful. My soul has been calmed and quieted like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. The contentment that David's experiencing is the contentment of a three- to five-year-old who's crawled up in their mother's lap and they're just being held. There have been volumes of psychology books written on the connection of a child to especially their mother and how profound that attachment is. There is no grief that cannot be soothed. There's no problem that can't be fixed. There's no injustice that cannot be righted when you're sitting in your mom's lap. As a five-year-old, 36 doesn't quite work the same way. And it's funny, you see this, the truth of the special connection if you become a parent, whether you're a mom or a dad, and if you're a dad, you begin to see the injustice of that connection. Because I am just as much a parent as Mariko is. She's not here, so I can talk about her. Uh, I'm just as much a parent as she is, and yet when one of our kids falls and scrapes their knee, they go to mommy. They will literally run around me to get, I mean, I'll be there. I'm here, arms open, and they are like dodging my arms. It's like, okay, the fact that you can juke me like that proves that you're not really that hurt, so I don't know why you're crying. There's a special connection, and this is the best metaphor that David can think of to describe the state of his soul. This is what his contentment is like. It's like a child, content to just rest in their, in their mama's arms. They're not worrying about the future. They're not stewing on the past. They're just content to be there. So this is what has happened to David's soul. His, da- his soul has been calmed and quieted. He's as content as a child in the arms of his mother. But the question is, how did this happen? This is what we all want to know. We're like, yeah, this is, sounds great. Every human wants to experience this, but how did this happen, David? How has David calmed and quieted his soul? Now, with uh, you know, Psalms, Psalms is poetry, so we have to kind of read the imagery. It's not like the epistle to the Romans where it laid out this logical argument. So we have to ask a question, okay, what calmed and quieted the child's soul? Well, it was being in his mother's arms, what led to this state in David's soul it was being in the arms of his God and his Savior. It was being in the presence of the Lord himself that David found this rest and this peace. So Isaiah thirty fifteen says, In returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and trust shall be your strength. That was David's secret of contentment. It was returning to the Lord and finding in his presence this deep contentment and this peace. Now, there may be, um, if you're like me, I always have a devil's advocate going on in my head. You may be thinking, okay, I get why David finds contentment, because he's David, right? I mean, he's the greatest king of Israel. He wrote a third of the Psalms. God literally called David a man after his own heart. Like, I hope the Lord speaks of me that way. No one else in the Bible. So yeah, David, okay, well, it makes sense that he would find this kind of contentment in the Lord's presence, but what about me? You're at ordinary, you know, human living in the 21st century, trying to make it through my day in a confusing time, 
trying to handle all of my responsibilities. How am I supposed to do this? How is this possible for me? And I'll just say this. If David, who lived before Jesus, could find this kind of rest and contentment, how much more can we, who live in the age of the Spirit, when Christ is always present by his Spirit? Let's think about David for a second. Okay, David lived before most of the Bible was available. Like, he literally would have had probably the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You know those books you skip in your yearly Bible reading plan. That's all he had. Didn't have the prophets. Certainly didn't have the New Testament. Uh, He didn't have any of the promises that we have in Christ, that he will be with us always, that he is working in everything for our... He had none of that didn't have the temple. That wasn't built yet. He didn't have the place where God had promised, hey, if you pray in this direction towards this place, I will hear your prayers. And yet David is able to find such contentment in the presence of God. You and I, however, by faith, we have have Jesus, who is the image of the God we cannot see the definitive revelation of God. God. What is God like? Where is he? I don't see him. You can't put him in a test tube. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. And Jesus has made us such promises. He will be with you always. You, you walk out of the sanctuary in a little bit and he's, he's with you by his spirit. You get into your car, and and Jesus, by his spirit, he's he's in the seat next to you. When you sit down for dinner tonight, whether you're sitting alone or surrounded by friends and family, Jesus is present there with you. The miracle is that David was able to find this kind of contentment before Christ had come, but now we have Christ. He's always available. This, This level of peace and contentment, it is always available to us if we'll just have eyes to see him. And so David has emptied himself, and God has filled him with his divine self. As David empties himself of pride and ambition and egotistical desire, God has healed his soul and filled him with himself and with the contentment that can only come from God himself that defies all human explanation. But David isn't done. He's, he's been speaking indirectly to us up to this point, kind of giving us an example. But here he finally addresses us directly in verse 3. So our first point, preparing for contentment. Second point, finding contentment. But our third point, a call to action. Let's read verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Again, David was the greatest king Israel ever had. He accomplished some pretty remarkable things. He united a nation that had been fracturing for generations, that had internal strifes, blood feuds. He united them. That takes an amazing leader to do that. He led the people towards probably the greatest level of faithfulness to Yahweh they would see in their history as a nation. He was an incredibly accomplished warrior. He delivered Israel from all the enemy nations around them, and yet his hope was in none of that And none of those things brought the kind of deep calm and contentment that we see in verse 2. Rather, his hope was in God. This is his testimony to Israel. He says, look, 
This is what I have found to be true of the Lord. He brings us contentment. See the Lord that I have tasted and found him to be good and true. See what he has done for me. And so hope in him alone forevermore. You know, Advent, becomes, because it comes at the end of the year, it's just kind of a natural time to, to reflect, take stock. As we look forward to 2024, and to think through, what are we hoping for in 2024? Are we thinking, boy, if, if just this thing happens in 2024, I'll be okay. Or if this other thing doesn't happen, I'll be good. If I acquire this thing I'm aiming for. The truth is, is that if that's what you're looking for, if that's what you're relying and placing all of your longings of your heart in, even if it happens exactly as you want it to happen, it won't be enough. And when the novelty wears off, more things will come up and discontentment will come creeping right back in. But on the other hand, if your hope is in the Lord your God, Jesus who is Emmanuel, that means God with you, if your hope is in him, then you will, be, you will have the contentment of a child in their mother's arms. You will be able to offer your sacrifice of thanksgiving in every circumstance that comes this year because your hope, your contentment is not based on the circumstances, but rather on God himself and his steadfast love and his kindness towards you. When God is your hope, you may not get all the things that you are longing for, and it'll be okay because you have contentment in his presence. Same time, when God is your hope, you may get everything you want. And in that case, these are just the gifts of a good father who gives more than we deserve. We have a choice this morning. God, through his servant David, is speaking to us. And in verse 3, when he says, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth, forevermore. That is the Spirit speaking to us. And we have a choice. What are we going to hope in in, in this coming year? More important, in, in whom are we going to hope in this coming year? In whom will we rest the longings and desires of our souls? As Christians during Advent, we're reminded that our hope is in the birth of a baby. And it was not just a, another child, but in the mystery of God's work was God himself, the eternal God, who created the universe from his breath, took on flesh as an infant. And he did not, he was not content to stay at a safe distance, but he came near. He moved into our neighborhood. He lived the life we live and he wasn't content to have a safe existence, but he gave himself up for us every day of his life until in the very end he gave up his life on a cross for our sins. And he's coming back. And this is where our hope is. So, O oh church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will teach us what it means to hope in you alone. Help us to trust that there really is contentment in you alone. All the things we're tempted to run to, to find meaning in our lives, meaning in our souls, 
Lord, we recognize at the end they're, they're all flawed and they will fail, but you alone are true. You alone are God. We hope in you alone, for you have loved us before we were born. You have purchased us with the blood of your Son. Everything we have is yours because you are worthy, and if we could give more than we had, we would because you alone are worthy. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for being born as a baby so that we might have life, for dying so that we might never die. Pray these things in your holy name. Amen.